podcast we're doing is on the people who are sort of on the maker side of digital government. Like, what is the work like? We're a change management organization disguised as a digital services agency. Every day I go to work and I'm surrounded by incredibly awesome, inspiring people working on cool stuff. We live here? Okay, well, I'm going to do stuff that's going to save the world. If there's anything that doesn't sound smart enough, we'll just turn up the smartness dial. To all the first time callers and the long time listeners, this is the 311. This is the 311 Podcast. It's a show about the people that make digital government work. I'm your host, Paul Bellows. If you'd like to find out more, visit yellowpencil.com. Our guest today has moved through all levels of government, from helping service transformation at the City of Edmonton, to working on the Canada.ca project, to working directly for Canada's CIO, helping to develop an ethical framework for artificial intelligence adoption that they've now open-sourced for any country in the world to use. Really pleased to introduce Ashley Cassavan. I'm Ashley Kasman. I'm the Director of Data and Digital for the Government of Canada. I'm situated within the Treasury Board Secretariat, and so we're responsible for doing uh, strategy and policy as it relates to supporting departments. Within my portfolio, I get to work on enterprise data, um, so really the enterprise architecture components uh, related to data, so how we're collecting, using, managing, storing, moving data. The second component is really now we're focused on different types of innovative technologies. The hot one right now is AI, so all of the strategy policies associated with that. I think we'll talk a little bit more about that. And then uh, finally, open source. So everything related to how we're thinking about and using open source that doesn't incorporate the use of open data and the release of that, but that's kind of in the broader data context. It seems like a lot, but they actually are all really related to one another. At first, when I took on this job, I was like, what? How how do all of these pieces work and how can I do all of these things? Um, But there's significant dependencies on building each of them um, in a parallel fashion so that we can actually achieve the outcomes that we want to achieve. So to me, I really see working on data and open as the foundational building blocks for um, outcomes that we want, like open data, but also uh, like artificial intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. I come from a background of political science and economics. Uh, That background in education made me think about community and politics and the role that we play. And actually, I started by thinking like, okay, well, I'm going to do stuff that's going to save the world as like most political science students that I know want to do. But then I took uh, Ian Urquhart's uh, course on Alberta politics and I became really attuned to the fact that we actually have a lot more local and domestic issues that uh, I think that people who are, are curious can kind of help resolve and fix. And so that really started me down a path. I then got a lot more involved in community organizing, worked on political campaigns. Um, But when you're working on political campaigns, there's a big difference when you have data and you don't have data. So Mm -hmm. I was really fortunate to work on the first uh, um, Obama campaign in 2008, where this kind of concept of evidence-based decisions was at the heart of the campaign. At that point in time, as like a lowly political organizer, I did not know what was happening, but I knew that it was different than how we had organized uh, provincial politics or municipal politics in Alberta at that time. So having that comparison, I then, when I got into uh, actual government and bureaucratic roles, I was constantly questioning why we didn't have access to data, where that data was, which then led me down an increasingly technical path. So as a result, I worked for the city of Edmonton, built the uh, open data portal there, and um, also got to see for my first time how government works on the inside. So that was really interesting as opposed to Or does it sometimes. 
Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's that for sure. Um, and then also I uh, then got the opportunity to come work for the federal government and uh, build out uh, open.canada.ca here, uh, Canada's open government portal. Um, but then when I was there, I realized that we had, again, back to these outcomes of, of wanting to release more data. Well, you can only release data if you, first of all, know that it exists, you know where it is, and you are able to release it. And what I realized is that in many circumstances, it's really boring to talk about policies, but like we didn't have the policies or the governance in place in order to allow that outcome to be achieved. So for me, I get sick of kind of asking why and just want to do something about it. So then I moved over to the Antares architecture team uh, where then I took on more of a data focused role. And then uh, again, recognized that in a similar fashion to open government goals and objectives uh, or releasing of open data, particularly uh, artificial intelligence was the exact same sort of problem that we want to achieve all of the things that we can with artificial intelligence tools. And because we wanted to really focus on um, doing that in a transparent and accountable fashion within the government, we brought in and then that open source component as well. So, and, and I love that, you know, like the, the policy exists to protect people, you know, yeah. and to protect data and to protect the systems. And you sort of step forward into something that's even more emergent, like artificial intelligence. And I think the first question to ask is, when do I get a robot butler? Yeah, after I do. Okay, I fair enough. To, you yeah. first, then yeah. I am second in line. I just want to make sure that we're clear on that. So uh, what does AI mean in a government context today? Like, just define that for, for us a little bit. Yeah, so it's interesting. I was going to pick up, you used the word emergent in your question. And one of the things is that when we're talking about AI, because there isn't really a good globally recognized definition around what we mean when we say AI, and so for me, um, artificial intelligence, I think of it in the broadest terms. That includes data analytics, mm -hmm. predictive modeling, um, but then also things like cognitive automation and machine interactions. That said, uh, I would say that some of those things that aren't emergent, we've been doing them for 20 and 30 years. And yep. even when we're looking at, and if we just think about um, cognitive automation, for example, as another type of technology, we still have ways that we've uh, um, ensured the appropriate use of those. And so I think that we need to really approach that in the same sort of fashion. And so from a Government of Canada context, where we're seeing a lot of um, different work is around predictive uh, monitoring. Uh, Transport Canada has uh, trained derailment detectors in the wheels that they've put. We have flood mapping for flood and fire prevention. Uh, we see it with a potential um, mapping of uh, predictive mapping around health outbreaks. Mm -hmm. And so trying to kind of stop things. And the government of Canada has been really involved in the slowing of the spread of Zika. So like different things like this. And it's interesting to think about the federal government versus uh, municipal or provincial government that I've also been involved with, which is just kind of like more tactical, tangible, thinking about transportation, thinking about uh, 311 calls coming in and how those services get dispatched better. We kind of have those things uh, with 1-800-O-Canada, but it's like often kind of these broader systemic issues that, mm -hmm. that we're dealing with. And so the ability to actually um, be able to use historical data for a long period of time and getting good quality data from StatsCan to be able to do that type of modeling gives us that opportunity to like overall make these big kind of systemic shifts that we need to. 
I think that economic and social development Canada has um, recently released an AI strategy, or they will soon be. And the stuff that they're doing is really thinking about improving how they provide services for benefits, um, right, so that right. people are getting better access. Like these are all really important things. So that so those are some of the things we're doing. What can go wrong with data from a citizen perspective, from a privacy perspective, when we don't bring good policy from government? Like, what are some of the dangers that, that we're trying to protect against? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, it's uh, to me, um, and I say that in a way you can't see my face, but I'm like obvious. Like, <laughs> I duh. can see your face. And you <laughs> yeah. have a look of obvious, duh. Yeah, and that's the thing is like it's just really. Um, to me, it's so foundational and critical that whether we're using data to make decisions or we're using it to consume services, you have to rely on good quality data. And sure, it's not going to necessarily be perfect, but it is reliant on having something that like trustworthy data um, so that you are getting an accurate service or again, your privacy is not being breached. Mm -hmm. That said, in order to ensure that that happens, then that's reliant on good policy and governance and management, stewardship, however you want to label it, of that data. And so, sure, um, we we need policies of all different types um, to think about how we move it and interoperability and standards associated with that. And we often talk about that when we're talking about quality of data. Um, but just even having policies around the collection um, and storage of that data to ensure that there aren't certain types of breaches from a privacy perspective, mm -hmm. but then it's collected also in a way that doesn't have bias and it has fairness and thoughtfulness into how that's being collected. We're really reliant on then good, thoughtful policy around that. How we're approaching this kind of policy concept is really making sure that we're setting the appropriate guardrails around what responsible and ethical implementation of that looks like. Um, and so making sure that um, the data that's being used in order to provide those outcomes and what we're seeing up to this point when I'm talking about predictive modeling um, we've seen that those are mainly for the purposes of making decisions. So uh, uh, what we've done is we've created a directive on automated decision making, and that applies to kind of this broadest bucket of artificial intelligence by saying that um, when a decision is being rendered in part or in whole by a machine, then you need to kind of follow this directive. And so it outlines um, not only that uh, any sort of data or methodologies uh, need to be released in an open and transparent fashion that are associated with that decision. It also indicates that you need to do an algorithmic impact assessment. So the algorithmic impact assessment is that framework that I'm talking about that allows um, departments when they're designing these projects to actually um, answer questions related to what the impact would be. Like, is it going to have an impact on somebody's health, health and wellness? Is it going to have an impact on whether or not somebody goes to jail? Is it going to have an impact right. on whether somebody gets a benefit? Like these, all these different types of things provide different risk levels. And so um, then there's also um, questions re related to mitigation. So have you done things to mitigate the impact that it would have on the public? Mm -hmm. And so how it works is those first set of questions gives you a raw risk. And then the second set are kind of like bonus points. Like you, you're doing a good job to mitigate that kind of impact. 
And so from that, you end up in category one through four, one being the lowest, four being the highest. And treating this in the same sort of fashion that we're treating other types of technology mm-hmm. and tools, we're saying, have you done uh, training, testing, monitoring of this system? But what we're adding in for purposes of artificial intelligence, because in some cases, there's that ability to, to learn and train these models, we're adding in peer review, and then also, when are you keeping a human in the loop to ensure that there's kind of a human oversight when there's an interest in making these end-to-end automated decisions. All that to say, we want to really balance innovation and protection of the public. And so the low risk level versus the high risk level is only just to say that we're not going to treat your subsequent actions, those training, testing, monitoring that I just mentioned, in the exact same way. We're not going to have as much scrutiny over a low risk type of application uh, versus something that's higher risk that kind of deserves that. But again, building off of existing types of technology practices, business practices that we already have in place and not treating it like it's an emergent technology. Yeah. So, and just to kind of play back through that, because there's just so much in what you just said. <laughs> like, but it's, it's amazing, you know, like, and, and I love that Canada's taking a leadership role here. Um, but, you know, like, let's look at something old school like the weather service, where we got years of data, then we can look at today's conditions, and then we can write some math statements that tell us what tomorrow might be like based on the data we have. Yeah. And that's fairly banal, and, you know, that data is publicly available. But then you sort of maybe take that same approach where someone's going to write some math that's going to mm-hmm. make a prediction about what's going to happen tomorrow. But now we're looking at children's health data. (laughs) And you might be able to identify who those children are, you know, who might have had a serious disease. And then, you know, someone, someone, bad people could say, I want to find the families of those children and I want to sell them a product or some insurance or some something, you know, so that idea of like privacy and protection, you know, and then so the, the AIA tool you're talking about then is the framework by which we identify how freaked out should we be (laughs) and how much oversight should be over this particular case. You know, so that's really interesting. And it also, just to add to that, we approach it from the perspective of defensibility. And so we're really trying to just say, okay, we need to make sure that we can explain how we arrived at that outcome. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that the AIA is not doing, and I just want to be clear on, is we're not saying what's good or bad. We're just Mm -hmm. saying this is the degree of impact. And then people way above my pay grade are going to make the decision whether or not that is something that is good and should be used and to what level or degree we're releasing the code or the data associated with it. And I should clarify that even when I say we want to release that code in an open fashion and the data associated with it as well as the report, we're still following existing Privacy Act. Mm-hmm. And so we're not we're not going to release private or secure information. It's open by default right. um, as opposed to just being closed by default. Mm-hmm. How's Canada playing a a global role with the AIA? One of the things I should have mentioned is that we're actually responsible for the development of, uh, um, or we developed the AIA in a collaborative open fashion. So we contravened existing government rules uh, uh, and put everything up in Google Docs. Um, But it was a good way to be able to truly do open policy. Uh, And we thought for this it was important because nobody's an expert on AI. If you don't know what AI is, like how can you be an expert in it so we really wanted to make sure that we were getting industry uh, academia um, civil society and other orders of government uh, involved in this conversation so that's that's 
that's what we did, and that's what we're going to continue to do by working with other governments internationally. So um, some have already adopted, and we'll, more will continue to adopt the algorithmic impact assessment that we built, um, but then also be able to add more nuanced questions or regional-specific questions to it. So we're really excited for that. When I first started in this role, I was like, I'm super fraudulent. Like, I... I should not be the director of anything related to artificial intelligence. And then my first day on the job, I was actually on a panel about it. And I was telling my team, I was like, I should not do this. And they're like, no, 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 you'll be fine. You'll be fine. You'll see. And uh, anyway, the um, chief statistician, um, Anil Aurora, was the moderator. And all of his questions were really about data and then how that relates to AI. And I was like, ah, I got this. And so <laughs> not that I have... Uh, I've definitely mastered or would say I'm an expert in AI. What I would just say is that um, I was fortunate to be in a position where my expertise in data um, allowed me to uh, uh, be able to play an influential role in this work because they're kind of common similar problems. Um, and so then that's kind of how I've continued to adopt that. So the AIA, I'm not aware of parallels in other jurisdictions, other people doing something quite like this. Is Canada the first out of the gate to build this type of a tool? Yeah, at a federal government level, um, the city of New York had done a similar version. It's um, And it's been something that academia has been talking about um, as as a need to have. I think that that's also a best practice that we're seeing with privacy protection. So EU GDPR, there's assessments around that. Right. Um, so it's not a new concept, but how to actually um, take that concept and put it into implementation and use in a government, Canada is the first to have done that. So there is so much interesting work on, on technology and digital transformation happening in Canada. Why Canada? Why now? What's happening here that, that is making us step out in front of so many things right now? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think that there's a combination of things. One is that we do have a lot of subject matter experts at universities. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the institutions in Edmonton, in Montreal and Toronto that are really amplifying. They've been doing AI work for yeah. a long time, but I think they're kind of amplifying this conversation right now as as many are internationally are looking to Canada for those expertise. I would say that that always has a an influence on the ecosystem that exists, which uh, naturally has prompted the government of Canada to then recognize that AI is coming in terms of how we're then providing services to Canadians. And so what we wanted to do was just make sure that when we identified that there was a policy gap, we wanted to be able to address that. Um, the other factor I would say is that because a lot of people kind of raise flags about gaps that exist um, and there's not always a prioritization around that, uh, we've just been really fortunate to have the right leadership in place uh, with our CIO, Alex Binet, um, and others who have really, and actually the president of the Treasury Board was really supportive in all of this work as well. So we've been really fortunate to have the right stack of leadership at the right time, recognizing that AI in Canada, but also just internationally is really important. And so uh, it gave us the leeway to to fill that policy gap that we saw. So um, I guess just right place, right time. Yeah. yeah. So all that it takes is decades of investment in AI and visionary leadership. Yeah, just that's it. Just that's it. <laughs> like, like not a big deal at all. <laughs> uh, and the people willing to do it. Yeah. Uh, so and you. So yeah, those two things and you. Yeah, people well, not just me. It. I would say that uh, I was really fortunate to just 
joined the team. So I, the team that I took over was just Michael Carlin, who was the one that really kickstarted identifying the issues and drafted a responsible AI in government white paper. That's where we determined that automated decision-making systems were how we're thinking about and using AI at this point in time. And he came really from a policy and an ethics background, uh, having worked at the public health agency previously and other government departments. Um, and then Noel Corvo is from a legal background, or he's a lawyer, and he thinks about how law needs to change associated with this. And then with my data background, it was just kind of right place, right time with the right people yeah. um, to be able to think through this. So. I think there's a lot of luck that's in that as well. So just to sort of close things off, people are maybe not so afraid of predicting the weather, but there is that sense of, you know, artificial intelligence. If we truly have something that's intelligent, it's a little bit scary. But to sort of put the scary side aside for a little while, because now we have a really good impact assessment that'll help us to guard against that. What are the things you're excited about, the things that could be possible if we're able to unpack some of the benefits of automated decision making? What are some of the things that might be possible tomorrow that aren't possible today because of some of this technology? As a good public servant, the reason why it's compelling to be in public service is because you're allowing people to get access to the services and the tools that they need in order to live happier and healthier lives. And so if we can do that in a more efficient fashion, I think both of us having worked in or with government uh, know that that's not always the case. And and having been in government um, for, that's the only thing I've ever done, um, I there's a willingness and an interest of people to provide good services. I, I see it every single day. We're not always equipped with the tools that we need to do it, and there's also like way more of a demand than a supply. And so you're kind of always balancing these things. And I think that in the whole like scary side of stuff we're talking about, there's lots of conversations going on about people losing jobs as a result. And what I really see is this opportunity to transition just how we're doing our work and retraining a lot of people in different types of uh, areas um, in, in order to just do government better. Um, and that's that's what I'm really, really excited about. And that's why we want to make sure, though, that we're, as we're still kind of ramping up to using these tools, we're starting to learn from how we could possibly do this in a better way when we're kind of dealing with those scarier issues. Yeah. So, so I mean, in a nutshell, you know, and there, there is always that worry of, you know, does automation mean lost jobs? Yeah. But, you know, the point is there's more work for government to do than government can afford to do. All the time. So where are the candidates for jobs that can be delegated and automated? Yeah, when I'm still seeing people dying of of opioids or still seeing people that are um, on the streets or still seeing people who are not getting access to health care, like, we haven't finished the job. So if we can use these tools to enhance that, um, then and, and we're doing it in a way that's trying to be transparent and open and most beneficial, and I I don't mean to make this seem easier than it is, we're going to have to come down and make these hard decisions on on what do we mean by public good and and how do we um, really balance the needs and rights of the individual over the needs of the community. Like We make these decisions as humans all the time, but when we're actually going to have to write down what that criteria is for how a machine's going to make those decisions is going to be so so difficult. So I don't want to underscore that, but I just think that the potential uh, outweighs um, any of the harm. But while we're getting there, let's learn from how these systems are working and make sure we keep building better guardrails. 
That's very cool. So Thanks. Robot Butler is 18 months? Yeah, totally working on it right now. Okay, yeah. fantastic. I can't wait. <laughs> Ashley, thanks so thanks much so for your drive. It was great to hear Ashley talk about how we need to think not just about what we can do with AI, but also what we should do with AI. The Algorithmic Impact Assessment Framework is published openly by the Government of Canada. It can be found by searching for AIA at Canada.ca, or you can find the link in the show notes. I spoke to Ashley during the 2019 Open Government Partnership Summit in Ottawa. At that time, she was leading the AI portfolio at the Government of Canada. Since then, she's taken on a new challenge as the Executive Director of AI Global. You can find out about her work there by following her on Twitter at, at Ashley Casavan or visit ai-global.org. Thanks for tuning into our first episode. We're going to keep having conversations like this, and we'd love to hear about guests you think we should include. Remember, government is all of us. Let's keep making a better world. This has been the 311 Podcast, and I'm your host, Paul Bellows. To all the first-time callers and the long-time listeners, this is the 311.